You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Shall we? Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Foreign Policy and Fragile States in America Abroad Town Hall Discussion here at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington. I'm Joshua Johnson. I am the host of 1A from WAMU, which is heard on NPR, where this conversation will be heard soon. And we welcome those of you who are following us on C-SPAN and watching on various networks around the globe. Let me introduce the panel today before we dive in. We'll get to some of your questions in a little bit, but first, Joining us on the panel today is Nancy Lindborg, the president of the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is hosting us today. On top of being president here, Nancy spent most of her career working in fragile and conflicted regions. Prior to joining the Institute, she served as the assistant administrator for the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at USAID. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. To Nancy's left. Let's hear it for Nancy, please. <laughs> To your right from Nancy is Elon Goldenberg, Senior Fellow and Director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Previously, he worked in the State Department and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for John Kerry on issues like the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations and ending the conflict in Syria. Elon, welcome. And to my left is Kimberly Kagan, the founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War. She's a military historian who's taught at Yale, Georgetown, and West Point. She's the author of numerous books and essays on foreign policy and is co-producer of The Surge, The Whole Story, an hour-long oral history and documentary film on the campaign in Iraq from 2007 to 2008. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. Let's welcome all of our panelists. We'll have time to get to some of your questions in a little bit. I want to start with a few minutes of questions from our guests, a little over half the hour, and then we'll get to you. It is just after four past the hour by my clock, which gives us about 56 minutes, but I work in radio. I can do a lot with 56 minutes. Nancy Lindborg, let's start with you. What is a fragile state? So a fragile state is a state that either lacks the capacity to take care of its citizens, it's unable to provide basic security um, services, and or it can also be a state that is uh, not considered legitimate by its own citizens, often is repressive, often is part of the problem. And a state that's fragile is less able to, to manage the inevitable shocks that come either a natural disaster or a conflict that can't be managed, so it spirals into violent conflict. And this is the heart of what we're seeing with a lot of the increased unrest and crisis around the world, fragile states that can't manage the shocks of disaster and conflict. We definitely are going to talk more about Syria specifically, but broadly speaking, what are some of the main ways that states become fragile? Are there certain last straws that tend to recur over and over in fragile states? Well, I would say a, a continuous characteristic of fragile states is governments that are not inclusive of all parts of their citizenry. So whole groups are excluded from economic, political, security opportunities uh, because of their ethnicity, religion, race, etc. That's probably the number one characteristic of a fragile state. Elon Goldenberg, how did Syria become a fragile state? Would you say that it's, it's what Nancy described, certain kinds of inclusion of certain groups within the Syrian society, or were there more factors? Yeah, well, I think a lot of what Nancy talks about is what set the conditions that then, you know, but there did need to be a spark. In the case of Syria, uh, the particular spark that then took us over the edge um, started really in what you might call the the so-called, I guess at the time was optimistically called the Arab Spring. Now I think we'd call it the Arab upheaval or basically these protests across the, the Middle East uh, that led not just to a state collapse in a place like Syria, but also Yemen, uh, Iraq, which had actually already been having struggling since the American invasion in 2003, Libya, uh, even Egypt to some extent. Um, and what you saw happen there was a few things. One is you saw this collapse of state authority uh, because institutions were so fragile. And you saw the conflict exacerbated 
uh, primarily because of external actors coming in and making the situation worse. So you have one of the things that happens when you have these fragile states is you create security vacuums then everybody else that's around them uh, is worried about losing influence or seize an opportunity. So the Iranians suddenly have a close Syrian ally that's that's looking like they're teetering and they want to protect the situation. And so they start investing in various militias and groups on the ground and dumping weapons and money. The Saudis are trying to counter the Iranians, so they're dumping money and weapons. The Turks are worried about what's going on on the border. And so now you've taken a fragile state that was already on fire and you've dumped a bunch of gasoline on it. And that's been, I think, one of the biggest factors, at least in the case of Syria, of what's made the situation really exceptionally bad. Yeah, the proxy aspect of this constantly comes up in every conversation we have about Syria. We do have some clips to play from some people who are very, very close to the conflict, and one of them has to do with the proxy aspect of that. We'll get to that in just a second, but Kimberly Kagan, let me bring you in. The Trump administration has been advocating more hard power than, say, soft power, things like aid, assistance, diplomacy. It's advocated for very sharp cuts to the State Department, 37% in the president's first version of his first budget, and cuts to USAID. Step back from Syria for, for just a second. How similar or different is this from what America typically does? In a fragile state, how does America usually deal with the balance between using hard power and soft power? Hard power and soft power are both necessary uh, in many circumstances in order to help a fragile state um, recover itself uh, and uh, in order to set conditions whereby governance uh, and civil society can return. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the solutions uh, that one might hope to see in Syria can neither be exclusively military or exclusively uh, soft power led. Uh, each has its role. Uh, and it is vitally important uh, that the United States have a robust budget uh, for its institutions like the State Department, like foreign aid, which are critical components uh, for us to achieve our mission uh, of helping keep the, the people in the world secure and free. Uh, but it is also actually incredibly important to recognize that in conditions on the ground such as those that we see in Syria, uh, the underlying violence um, and oppression of human beings is not part and parcel of a stable regime. Uh, and therefore, there is a degree of human security that we must attain before we actually begin trying to stabilize Syria. So I, just to make sure I, I follow where you're going, it sounds like you're saying that there's a place for both. Maybe that the Trump administration's balance tends to be a little harder than in the past, but there's a role for hard power and soft power if they're in the right balance? I, I think there's a role for hard and soft power, but I wouldn't say that the Trump administration is actually pursuing a hard power strategy in Syria. In fact, if we look at the Trump administration's policy in Syria, we see extraordinary continuity with President Obama's policy in Syria, namely uh, a, an effort to uh, expel ISIS from its territorial control in Raqqa and eastern Syria, uh, a backing of the Syrian Kurdish groups uh, that have fought with us against ISIS, um, a, an effort at international diplomacy uh, that was actually begun under President Obama. Um, and so, in fact, uh, I see an extraordinary amount of continuity between President Trump and President Obama. Um, and I think neither had uh, a ro robust enough humanitarian or uh, civil society or military approach. Nancy Limborg, let me put that question to you. The balance between hard power and soft power today under the Trump administration compared to what we tend to see in how America deals with fragile states. How do you see it? Well, I think the, the most important answer to that lies actually with a lot of our military personnel. And as you hear from retired four stars, uh, what happens after the fight is as important what happens during the fight. And we need to be sure that the balance remains uh, such that we can continue to have the development and diplomacy tools fully available, especially 
take Syria's neighbor, Iraq, where we just concluded yet another campaign. The temptation will be, now we should leave. But now is when some of the really, really important hard work happens for which you need those so-called soft tools. But I would say there's nothing soft about it in terms of the importance of rebuilding uh, not just the physical infrastructure, but the human inf infrastructure, as Kim said, as Kim said, the ways in which uh, societies need to heal so they don't fall back into violence. Unfortunately, we just end up fighting these wars in, in cycles otherwise. We have a number of clips that we'd like to add to the conversation, including this one from Baha Dabuk, who is a Syrian refugee from Aleppo, now living in Istanbul. Let's listen. I know that we look like we are not organized and we don't have an organized leadership, but in the end we have a very educated uh, majority of people who are ready to come back and help the community, but we are being pushed away by all, by all these militias, uh, basically any side that you can think of. We need an organized side to actually give us the help that we need. We don't need them to just support one group and throw out the others, maybe support a group that unifies all the groups. This is what we need. That was Baha Dabag, a Syrian refugee from Aleppo, now living in Istanbul. Ilan Goldenberg, Baha wants peace in Syria, says there is an entire class, an educated majority, as he puts it, that are ready to come back. You earlier mentioned the proxy war aspect of this, where Turkey has its peace, and Russia, and Iran, and the US, and all these competing views of what they want to see emerge from this war. Talk about the way that comes together, this, this large class of Syrians who say, stop all this, and all these proxies, who would stop, but under different terms. How does that work? So, yeah, at this point, where we are is the way I would describe it, you know, and, and I might have advocated for something different three or four years ago, um, but I think at this point, where we are is, Syria is essentially divided into four or five different regions um, that are held by different actors. You have, uh, in the southwest on the Jordanian-Israeli uh, border, some militia groups that the U.S. has supported for a long time. You have the central part of the country, which is really where the majority of the population and resources are, um, held by Assad, along with support from Russia and Iran. You have what I'd call an al-Qaeda safe haven in the northwest, in Idlib province. Then you have um, a Turkish area, uh, also in the north, uh, where the Turks have basically hold territory on their border. And then you have this whole large swath that's really uh, supported or controlled by American supported Kurdish groups. And all the fighting, not all the fighting, but a lot of the fighting at this point is happening where these different tectonic plates meet. Like where there's seams, the places where these different, uh, on these borders. And so if you're trying to get to a peace at this point, I'm not for splitting Syria apart. I don't think that anybody wants to like redraw maps because that comes with its own set of violence and, and, and problems but at least coming to short-term and eventually long-term political arrangements to stop the fighting at these seams, and then trying to see if you can get to some kind of a national arrangement is sort of how you would have to try to go about this at this point. But it's gonna take years, um, and I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure if we're really up for it, or if anybody's up for it, but it's the best option I see right now. Before I come back to you, Kimberly, Nancy, I saw you perk up. Well, I just, that clip underscores one critical point, is that ultimately peace needs to happen through locally led action. And what we heard very powerfully there is the desire, the motivation, and the ability, as he noted, uh, for the Syrian people to do that with the right kind of help. But they will ultimately be necessarily leading the future of their own country. That actually gets right into the next clip that we wanted to play. This is from a gentleman named Musa, who is from Damascus. He works at a cell phone store in Istanbul, and he talked about that very thing, how not everybody is looking for help from another nation. Listen. I am from Damascus. We want our country to be cleaned of all foreign agents and kick them out of Syria. My only request is to get our country back without the foreign powers. Why do we have all these foreign powers inside Syria? The people of Syria can solve their problems by themselves. That was Musa speaking through a translator who is from Damascus and works in a cell phone store in Istanbul. Kimberly Kagan, clearly Musa wants the rest of the world to kind of leave Syria alone. I wonder if that's even doable, and if it is, what that would look like. Is there a, is there a path to getting all of these proxies 
out of Syria and let it solve its issues of fragility by the will of the Syrian people alone? The quotation from Musa in Istanbul really illustrates how what had been a democratic revolution uh, at the beginning of the conflict period uh, has evolved into a great power and small power conflict uh, inside of Syria. One of the key objectives that we, the United States, and the international community writ large should have is to ensure that Syria is over time dissociated from the uh, extraordinary global uh, and regional conflict in which it finds itself, or perhaps I should say Syria has become a black hole into which regional and global powers fall. Um, so it is absolutely essential to disconnect Syria from those conflicts, but realistically, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, we have uh, watched that revolution, uh, which had those civilian democratic aims of replacing uh, the Assad regime and bringing reform, uh, changed into a violent and existential conflict. And we have to work uh, with, with the fact that we have such a conflict uh, underway inside of Syria. So what do we do? Um, the first thing that we need to recognize is that different great powers have different objectives. And we, the United States, tend to want to find a common objective among all of the different powers. And we uh, strike on uh, something that we would think would be common, like fight ISIS. But we all put that at a different point in our prioritization list. It is more important to the United States than it is to Turkey. It is more important to Turkey than it is to the Assad regime. Uh, the Assad regime is not fighting ISIS. Uh, the Assad regime has every incentive actually to make sure that um, extremist groups perpetuate themselves inside of Syria so that outside powers can't come in uh, and strengthen the opposition in, and make it legitimate and democratic. Therefore, I think we really have to be uh, eyes wide open about different actors' objectives. And we also need to recognize uh, that we can't just fight ISIS alone. Uh, we actually need to start working now on uh, creating conditions of uh, stability uh, in different areas of Syria, just like Ilan said, um, so that over time uh, there is hope for stabilization, a generation, not a year. You're listening to Kimberly Kagan, the founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, Nancy Lindborg, the president of the United States Institute of Peace, and Elon Goldenberg, senior fellow from the Center for New American Security. This is America Abroad's panel on foreign policy and fragile states here at the U.S. Institute's, the Institute of Peace. I'm Joshua Johnson from 1A on NPR. Nancy, let me come back to you. Let's play one more clip from Istanbul. This is from Barak Shul Rahman, both from Damascus. They're addressing something that's on the minds of a lot of Syrians right now, which is the violence that's been going on for seven years. Hundreds of thousands of lives lost, most recently in a place called Ghouta, which is located just east of Damascus. Here are Barak and Abdul. You know, nowadays we have a mass care in Aguta, uh, hundreds of people die and hundreds of children have died and nothing has done. We are asking people to take care of the Aguta victims. It's being reported that aid is being delivered, but it's not true because the roads are blocked and no one can get in or out from the area. Please feel mercy and take care of them. Those were Barak Shukri and Abdul Rahman speaking through a translator, both of whom are from Damascus. Both of them spoke to us from Istanbul. Nancy, what's the moral obligation of the U.S. to help in a, in a fragile state? The United Nations has basically thrown its hands up and said, apparently y'all don't care about Eastern Ghouta, because nothing we have said has made a ceasefire stick. The world seems to be content with letting these people die and preventing anything from being done, just on a humanitarian level. The U.S. certainly has the resources to make anything happen. But what should the U.S. be doing with a fragile state like Syria, especially in a clear humanitarian disaster like Eastern Ghouta, where all people need is a little aid? What should the U.S. be doing? 
Well, the U what the U.S. has been doing has been providing ever-escalating packages of humanitarian assistance, including efforts to get it across the border. Unfortunately, and just tr tragically, what's going on in Eastern Ghouta right now is similar to what has been going on for the past seven years over and over again. The issue is, is less about the amount of humanitarian assistance, but rather what are the mechanisms for stopping the source of the need. Um, we're actually much better at responding to crises and providing assistance after a crisis um, has hit than we are at either preventing it or in the case of Syria, the, ab uh, the ability to stop it. And it, it speaks both to the set of bad options that are available for stopping it, but also to the weakness of the international system, the usual tools and levers that we have through the UN to really enforce what everybody agreed with the UN Security Council, but has been flagrantly and repeatedly ignored. I wonder also, Ilan, what just for the average American we see in terms of our responsibility to do more in fragile states. I mean, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, soon to be former Secretary of State, has said of Syria that he doesn't want to engage in nation building, but he thinks the U.S. should be creating conditions for stability. The Trump, Trump administration has taken a much more isolationist policy when it comes to foreign aid. That's kind of a sentiment at the heart of America first. I wonder where you see the the human conversation in a developed nation like the U.S. when looking at a fragile state like Syria and figuring out what the populace believes is the right way to help? Well, this is, I think, a problem. One thing I think we can do as the United States is lead. I mean, the world listens to us more than anybody else because we are the most powerful country in the world still. Um, and so that means if you're going to encourage others to rebuild, you have to be at the forefront. You have to be, you're going to ask others to throw a lot of money at the problem, you got to throw money at the problem. So this is, I think, one of the problems we've had with the current administration is this general desire to pull back on funding for all kinds of programs like this across the board. It's not just, well, we pull back and others will, will chip in uh, and we'll just get the Gulf states to do a lot more, which is often what we do in the Middle East. We just assume that they're made out of money and they have a lot of oil so they can pay for everything. They watch what we do and they will invest based on what we invest because what they care about as much as they care about you know, helping people in, in a place like Syria, they care a lot about wielding influence in the United States and so they can see what our priorities are and then they will try to mirror those and that happens internationally. So when we pull back and do little, um, others other than talk, others will do the same. Um, more broadly, I do think there's this challenge with a, with a question like Syria in terms of our own population which is, what we've done, and this isn't just the Trump administration, this is also the Obama administration, we want to do something. We feel terrible about what is going on, but we don't want to get really deeply engaged because we're afraid of you know, a repeat of the Iraq war or, just getting, or Vietnam and getting bogged down. And so we do just enough to make the situation worse without doing enough to make it better. I mean, if, if, you know, if we had an option of just let Assad win and make this go as quickly as possible or very aggressively push him out, um, if we had done, chosen one of those two pathways early on, I think we would have been in a better position than doing just enough to support opposition without doing enough to really have it win, and which just ends up perpetuating and makes us another one of the parties to the conflict of just dumping money and weapons and, and support into trying to reshape the situation. So um, that's a really tough spot for any president to be in because American president wants to help and wants to do the right thing, but also knows his, his or her population does not want to get stuck in a major conflict. Kimberly, you wanted to jump in. I, I sure do. Uh, first, here in the case of Syria, we have the opportunity to make a moral-based case and an interest-based case, and they align. Uh, the case is that there are uh, extraordinary human beings uh, within Syria who have, are the victims of a brutal, violent campaign of oppression perpetrated by the Assad regime, uh, abetted by Iran, and abetted by Russia. 
What we're seeing in Eastern Ghouta is indeed something that we have seen elsewhere during the war of a deliberate targeting of civilians uh, in order to uh, achieve war aims. That's what the Russians are doing. That's what Assad is doing. That is what Iran is doing. Um, therefore, uh, we are watching those regimes commit war crimes uh, break international laws, the law of armed conflict. Um, and they are doing so in a way that we have populations that are displaced through, through the Middle East, uh, through the globe. Um, and we have Syria uh, that has transformed itself into a fertile ground for recruitment uh, for uh, Sunni violent extremists and Shia violent extremists from all around the world, uh, from the United States all the way out to uh, East Asia. What we need to do is recognize uh, that the reason why the recruitment of uh, these foreign fighters uh, is so effective is not because we have a narrative problem, but be because we have a reality problem. Namely, uh, there is no one that is actually protecting the population of Syria. Um, and therefore, the rallying cries uh, that extremist organizations are launching uh, to try to get people to mobilize for justice are falling on ears uh, that are unfortunately made receptive by the abandonment of the international community. I do want to shift gears just slightly, but Elon, what you were talking about in terms of properly diagnosing the problem, that reflects something that one of the United States Institute of Peace's Generation Change Fellows told us earlier. Agietu Adwak Niaba comes from South Sudan. Here is what Agietu had to say. international community has not only failed uh, to diagnose what the issues are, but uh, in the process it has also failed to come up with the right policy tools. And so if they want to engage constructively, I think it is important uh, for them to understand what the, the real root causes are. Otherwise, you will have a situation of a protracted um, uh, conflict. That's Agietu Adwak Niaba, who is a USIP Generation Change Fellow from South Sudan. We're at about halftime in our conversation. We do want to get to questions in just a moment. Is there anyone who thinks they might have a good question percolating that they might want to? There's one. Anybody else? One smart man with one good question, and then we're done. Two. All right. Anyone else? All right, before we get to questions, and I, I three, four, I think we'll have a mic moving around somewhere. Okay, we'll, we'll get the mic moving. Before we get to questions, I do have one more question for you, Nancy. My one rule for Q&A whenever I do an event is to be generous with our time. You are all far smarter than me on issues of Syria and fragile states, and I would like to learn as much from you as possible. And the more generosity we can show with one another's time, the more we can learn from each other. So please, I would urge you to be concise and thoughtfully concise as you phrase your questions so that we and our audience around the world can learn as much from you as possible. Cool? Excellent. Nancy, in a report you co-authored for USIP on fragility, you wrote the following, quote, the temptation to hunker down and wait for this moment of disorder to pass is understandable, but short-sighted. We simply do not have that luxury. There is too much at stake for American interests, for the interests of our allies and partners, and for global peace and security, unquote. That's from a report that you co-authored for the U.S. Institute of Peace. Explain what you mean by that, particularly in light of what I was discussing with Elon, that a lot of Americans have said, it's nice that we've been known as the world policeman, but what about us? And also in light of the fact that nature abhors a vacuum. I assume if we don't step up, someone else will, but a lot of Americans are just tired. We've been playing world police for generations, and there are some Americans who are living pretty third world as it is. Like, can you just game this out for me, what hunkering down would actually mean, practically speaking? Sure. Hung and, and a couple of issues are blended together there. We don't live in the kind of world where we can just get in bed and pull the sheets over our heads and expect that that will solve the issues. Way too interconnected, too many threats, 
that come up from places that we're not watching, think Ebola coming from West Africa, clearly ISIS as it emerged. Um, so from a security interest, we can't afford to hunker down. It's also not who we are as a people. I think the, the American people are very engaged and care deeply about what happens, but they want the burden to be shared. The other, the other point, though, is we are very reactive, and so we are responding to crises after they become far more complicated and so much more suffering. And we have actually been escalating our humanitarian and peacekeeping assistance over the last five years at a very great rate. Nobody has cracked the code on how to prevent conflict from becoming so violent, but we can certainly do a better job of it. The last four administrations have identified state fragility as a key security threat. And yet, we haven't invested and we haven't organized in a way to do that kind of work more effectively. And what you see is when states become very, very fragile, as Elon said earlier, they become far more vulnerable to regional and international powers getting involved and messing it up. And so we are going to see a greater disorder the more that we don't pay attention to that. And American leadership is key. Do you think we haven't been paying enough attention, Nancy, because we don't have the resources, we don't have the intelligence, we don't have the information, or we just don't care? I think it's a combination of we haven't organized ourselves effectively to, to really crack the code of how to do this better. But why haven't we organized ourselves? I mean, does, does America as a government, as a body politic, actually care enough as a citizenry, as a nation, as a government to do that? We have the knowledge, but do we care enough? I, I think we do care enough. We care enough that we're putting a lot of funding into treating the, the crisis, the humanitarian crisis. Uh, but it, you know, it's much harder to convince people to take action before something happens. It's the dog that didn't bark, right? But that's where we need to turn our attention and our investment. Human nature is to be preoccupied with the thing that blew up. But we need to think more about getting upstream of those problems. And it's an, org it's a, it's an organization challenge. Before I let Elon make a comment, let's get the mic to this gentleman who rose his hand. We'll get to you for the first audience question, and then we'll keep working our way around the room. Elon, go ahead. Sure. Um, so I just want to echo exactly what Nancy said on how this have these localized problems that end up affecting us and give you the specific example in Syria of how this has happened. Look, the conflict in Syria has led to massive refugee flow and massive extremist flow into Europe and into the United, less to the United States, but it's impacted the politics in the United States, certainly. And you've had attacks in Paris and you've had massive refugee flows into Germany. You can directly tie it to things like Brexit. You can tie it, quite frankly, to the election of right-wingers across Europe, sort of these populist movements. Uh, and quite frankly, to the election of Donald Trump. And all these things, in my opinion, are weakening now, are starting to weaken now really core things for basic American security that has been the basis of how we've governed the world order since 1945 uh, that has kept the world stable and kept us from new world wars and kept us from major conflicts. All of this, to some extent, can be tied back to what hap what's been happening in Syria for the last six or seven years. So it's having a, a very direct effect on, honestly, at this point, how we are governing ourselves on a daily basis. You can draw that line very directly um, to Donald Trump's immigration policy and the things like, all kinds of things like that. Let's dive in with audience questions for any of our panelists, Kimberly, Nancy, or Elon. When you ask your question, just tell us your name, where you're from, if you're with an organization or if you're a student at a university, and then let's get your question. Let's go to you, and then someone over here had a question? And then we'll get to you, sir. Yes, go ahead. Thank you all very much. My name is Connor Clark. I'm currently a counterterrorism scholar at the University of Maryland. And we have seen over the decades debates on the ethical and practical and strategic implications of the appropriate scale and nature of US support for what are to oversimplify imperfect governments and non-state yet powerful proxies. Now these of course range from you know, the uh, measuring effectiveness, what those metrics should be, what are the uh, results of the appearance or reality of, of imposing our standards on other countries. And of course, uh, this is often in the context of saying, oh, well, the alternative would be worse. And I think this fits well into the earlier point about how nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, frankly, a lot of critics of U.S. foreign policy seem to somehow miss that the most brutal dictatorship the U.S. has ever supported would quite arguably be Stalin during World War II. 
Um, so how is this paradigm of this decision-making and the public discourse and the elite debates in Washington uh, shifted from more recent turning points, such as the end of the Cold War, 9-11, the Arab Spring, and so on? And what trends are you seeing now that might be changing how policymakers uh, see these, uh, these decisions and dilemmas? Connor, is that, who do you want to direct that question to? Uh, perhaps Elon specifically, but uh, right. everyone is welcome. Thank you. Elon, go ahead. Sure. Um, um, hmm. And All actually, right. Connor, for the benefit of our listeners, I want to make sure I understand the mainstream yeah. of your question, because I didn't go to the University of Maryland, so you're way smarter than me. I went to Miami. I spent my time on the beach. It sounds like you're asking about the way that we think through global threats, about which ones are the biggest, which ones are worth our time, which ones, like Nancy said, will deal with it when it becomes a forest fire, and how that's changed over time, like the way we think through threats in today's world. Is that what you're getting at? Oh, yeah, let's get a mic back over to you so everybody, so everybody can hear you. Is, is that what you're, what you're talking about? Exactly, and I'm personally more curious about the elite level, but I'm very all, uh, interested in the popular discourse as well. Okay, thank you, Connor. Go ahead, Elon. So I think part of the problem is we have this sort of Jekyll and Hyde issue at the elite level, certainly, where on the one hand we say, yes, we have to support these countries who we've always supported, even if they are dictatorships. And it's more, I mean, at the elite level and at the policymaking level, it's, it even comes down to... Um, just history of relationships. You work with these people for years and years. You work with Egypt and Hosni Mubarak for 30 years on negotiating various Israeli-Palestinian peace efforts. Uh, and then democracy comes or protest comes, and you're like, what do we do about this situation? And it's incredibly difficult. But our instinct as Americans uh, is also to intervene positively on the side of democracy um, and to encourage democracy, certainly when an opportunity like that presents itself. Uh, and so that's a really hard dilemma for policymakers. Um, I guess maybe the best thing we can do is make up our minds and have some clarity of thought. It's really, really hard to do, but oftentimes we found this a lot during the Arab Spring in particular, where it was just really hard and your events are moving so quickly and you're sitting there trying to make a bet of, well, if I come out against this dictator, uh, am I gonna be dealing with him for the next 10 years and have I now burned my relationship? Or is he gonna be gone tomorrow and I really should come out because I need to look good? I mean. This is a challenging uh, sort of problem set for our leaders. And, and, and Syria is a perfect example. We came out and called for Assad's removal in, in, you know, in the summer of 2011, but then we realized, wait, it's not actually gonna happen, and now we need, are we gonna follow through militarily to do this or not? No, we're not going to, so where do you find yourself? Um, it's, a, it's a challenging question. I don't think there's any great answers to it. Kimberly, I'd like your perspective on this, especially from a military, military historical perspective. Yes, uh, look, uh, stabilization, uh, which is part of the subject of this panel discussion, is in part about establishing physical security. It's in part about helping to establish governance and legitimacy. And when, uh, and I think that we're at risk right now as we look at Syria, uh, of thinking that backing Assad as a dictator is to end the violence is somehow going to be better uh, and more stable uh, than thinking about what we actually need to do over the long term to establish conditions uh, for uh, secure, stable governance to return to Syria, and that governance needs to be legitimate in the eyes of the people of Syria. Um, it's not about us, it's about them. The reason I bring that up uh, is that I think that we're at a moment uh, where we're at risk of embracing uh, dictatorship in favor of order, when the order that dic a dictator like Assad will create will be very illusory and temporary, um, and it will not actually be backed by uh, institutions that are accepted by the Syrian people, um, and it will be enforced by coercion in a way that actually uh, continues the rise of extremist uh, insurgency against the regime. So we actually have to take the long view uh, rather than prioritizing stability just as an end in itself. If it's only stability for a year, it's not stabilization. Let's keep going with the next question. Yes, sir. 
Thank you very much, Joshua. Great discussion. Edward Joseph, Johns Hopkins Sice, and the National Council on U.S.-Libya Relations. Joshua, uh, I'm going to be as concise as I can, but I don't speak as fast as you. That's all right. So, uh, okay. Uh, so it, I was just wondering if I could take the panel's uh, view across the Med from Syria to Libya. Joshua used a very important uh, phrase. He said, uh, mentioned moral obligation. And Nancy, you made a uh, very strong point about the importance of planning for the aftermath of conflict. So my question for the panel about Libya is, given, and it's for all of you, uh, given the U.S. role in removing Gaddafi, and given the fact that compared to Syria, uh, Libya is less violent, uh, it is uh, less displaced, you don't have half the country displaced as you do in Libya, and you have fewer actors acting as proxies. There are some, but uh, you, have, uh, you don't have that uh, same kind of proxy uh, factor that you do in Syria. Does the panel believe that there is a place, again, moral obligation as well, for greater U.S. engagement in Libya, if not leadership. Uh, currently, we, we've basically subcontracted it all to the U.N. plan in place. There's a lot of skepticism about whether that plan, whether you could hold elections and so forth. So right. I'm very keen on interesting hearing the, the panel's response. So Thank is you, there a role for greater U.S. engagement, engagement in, in Engagement, Libya. if not leadership. On the basis Libya. of a moral obligation. Moral or and or the fact that compared to Syria, it's not as uh, destroyed. Uh, uh, and perhaps hopeless a country as uh, be, Syria is. I'd be interested. Thank you for your question. I, you. While we get the mic over to whoever's got the next question on the side of you, ma'am, right down here, I'm curious to take a, a, vol, a poll. Show of hands. There's a greater role for the U.S. and Libya? Hands? Yes? Yeah? Oh, all three. All right. What about in the audience? Greater role for the U.S. and Syria? Yes? Libya. Libya. I'm sorry, Libya. I beg your pardon. See, I did go to Miami. <laughs> to, for Libya. Hands, yes? No? Okay. Not sure? Thank you for being honest. Much appreciated. <laughs> Nancy, why don't you go ahead? Well, I think it goes well beyond a moral obligation. I think there's a security rationale for um, playing a more prominent role or to being more engaged in trying to bring uh, Libya to greater peace and stability. The, the, the meltdown in Libya has had profound impact across the Sahel, uh, in places like Tunisia that share a very long border. Uh, goods, illicit goods and, and terrorists are transshipped through that territory. Um, so there's a, there, are, there are many good reasons. At the same time, it also underscores the importances of partnerships and alliances. So I do think we can and should be engaged, but I do think we can and should do so with strong partners who share our views, our values, and our vision for what the, the pathway might look like for Libya. I'd love to jump in and just recommend a study that I had the privilege of, of taking place in. Uh, one of my colleagues, Emily Estelle, at the Critical Threats uh, Project at the American Enterprise uh, Institute actually did a very substantial study of planning for Libya. Um, and I highly commend her work on this project. It's very thorough, it's very nuanced, uh, and you can find it at criticalthreats.org. We are speaking to Kimberly Kagan, founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, Ilan Goldenberg, senior fellow from the Center for a New American Security, and Nancy Lindborg, the president of the United States Institute of Peace. This is an America Abroad discussion on fragile states. I'm Joshua Johnson from 1A on NPR. Let's continue with audience questions. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Maria Alejandra Silva. I work at the Washington office on Latin America, and I'm a student at GW. Um, I feel like we haven't spent enough time talking about states that have come from the brink of failed statehood, um, and I just want to get your opinion on what lessons we learned from our intervention in Colombia. Uh, Nancy, why don't you take that? We actually got a question about Colombia that I think will, I'm glad you asked that. We'll follow with this question after we get yours answered. Nancy, what about that? Lessons learned in Colombia. I think we've learned some very important lessons. The the first is that these uh, re resolution of, of these kinds of conflicts take a long time. Colombia had a 50-year civil war that was just recently drawn partly to a close with the peace accord of last year. And that peace accord was very, very inclusive. And we know that when you have more than just the guys with the guns at the table, but you actually have victims of the conflict, women, um, people who were displaced, that you have a better chance of forging a deal that will be more enduring. 
We also learned that the U.S. stayed engaged in Colombia across three administrations with significant investment across d development, diplomacy, and defense, which uh, going back to the what do we need to do differently question about the U.S. government, that's the kind of work we need to do differently, where there's a clear goal aligned across the various functions of our government with people, uh, the, the military, our diplomats, and our development people having a shared goal of where it is we're heading. And we had greater impact. Finally, we had a partner. We had a partner in the government of Colombia across two of their administrations. Before we get to the next question on this side of the room from this gentleman right here, Nancy, I'm going to stick with you. We have a question sent in to us by David Salas, who is the president of SOMOS, which is an organization in Colombia that's working to enrich local communities by increasing access to education. Following off of this young lady's question, here's what David wants to know. How can we promote greater cooperation between the United States and Colombia to generate a structural peace that considers aspects of coexistence, culture, and socioeconomic factors? That was David Salas, the president of SOMOS, an organization in Colombia, asking about creating a structural peace and how the U.S. can help Colombia do so. I was particularly taken by his use of the word coexistence that promotes aspects of coexistence. What should the U.S. or could the U.S. be doing in that regard? Well, one of the important aspects is continuing our engagement because what we know is a conclusion of a peace agreement often means that a lot of work still has to, has to follow. And in Colombia, we now need to implement what was agreed upon. And that includes things like the land reform, the disarming of the, of the armed rebels, and enabling them to reintegrate into the into community to coexist. And so this, this is a time for the U.S. to continue to stay involved and not only think about the security threat narrowly in terms of cocoa production, but rather understanding that we'll be better served with our security if they fully reach a more um, inclusive peace. Let's get the next question. Yes. Hi, my name is Wes Knowles. I'm a program associate at Meridian International Center. Um, I guess I'm wondering, so there was a discussion about borders from Ilan and then a talk about legitimacy of the government themselves um, from Ms. Kagan or Dr. Kagan. And I'm wondering, what about the legitimacy of the borders themselves, looking back at the Balfour Declaration, looking back at sort of great power actors after World War I between the United Kingdom and France, and, and how much of what we're seeing today in Syria or what we've seen in Iraq and, and so on and so forth is just a result of the fact that we made some really terrible decisions in the early 20th century. Who did you want to put that question to? It could go to the table, I guess. I mean, okay. everyone has something to say. All right, well, how about Kimberly? Why don't you take, go first and then we'll get to Elon. I'll, I'll start by saying, uh, first, first and foremost, uh, it's really important to recognize that our international order is based on the understanding that borders should not be revised by force, but rather by uh, instruments of the in international community. Uh, and so whatever they are, uh, the United States and the international community actually have an interest, a very firm interest in making sure uh, that those borders are not moved by force. Um, and we can go back to ISIS's early days operating across border in Iraq and Syria and remember them trying to plow up uh, the remnants of that uh, sandy border and recognize that however important it was to them symbolically, uh, it was nevertheless um, a recognized border between two states, and we have an interest in preserving it. The second thing that I want to uh, make sure that we recognize is that other than ISIS, we actually have the Syrian uh, regime and the Syrian opposition, the Iraqi state, actually trying to reestablish the map as it 
was, not as uh, they would like it to be. And I have always been struck about with this when I uh, spent time on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that we can think that states like Iraq uh, or Afghanistan are fictional notions, uh, but communities today, uh, people today have a very defined notion of what their state is, uh, and it's linked to the physical borders that they've seen on their flag. I know we're slowly running out of time. Before we get to Ilan, let's get the mic to her for the next question, and then we'll let Ilan jump in. Go ahead. Sure. Just um, to say I totally agree with Kim, and I think that this is a, you know, yes, if the borders were drawn differently, you know, we hadn't had Sykes-Picot, uh, you could look at a different Middle East, but this is the Middle East that we have. There is no, not only is it the Syrians and the Iraqis who aren't trying to redraw borders, nobody, none of the outside actors are trying to redraw borders. Nobody wants to redraw borders. Part of the reason nobody wants to redraw borders is that it's a very violent process oftentimes. And so as violent as everything has been, once we force the Turks and the Kurds to define exactly where that line is, they'll fight over it militarily if they have to, for example. Uh, and so the way to try to address this, and I think Nancy brought this up earlier, is any peace agreement is going to have to include you know, essentially a very weak Syrian state, I think with a lot of different local actors playing a role in negotiating that outcome because those local actors actually control a lot of what's going on the ground, whether it's the people with the guns or the, the local governing councils and, and those actors are gonna have to be reflective of the views of the population in those areas. But that's sort of how you try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's through a federalized system, it's through decentralization, while keeping the actual map of Syria basically the same. Let's see if we can't squeeze in a few more questions before our time is up. Yes, ma'am. And then we'll come to you, sir. First off, of course, thank you for putting on this great panel. Um, my name is Elena Ferguson. I'm a research consultant from the University of Denver. And my question is, we have the benefit of hindsight to see these regime trends over the last several decades. So we've seen anocratic and autocratic regimes, such as Assad, benefit from this pan Arab nationalist movement. And now we've also seen that movement come to schismatic collapse with the people under these leaders. So my question, tying into Dubuque's clip actually, and Elon's following comment on the separated regions of Syria, is are we seeing any indicators of a common grounds new development that ties any of these separate combative groups together to the point where we can see in a generation a fully unified movement? How about Nancy, can you take that question? A fully unified movement across different of the groups? It sounds like you're asking in these states that have, whose fragility has caused these fractures. Have we ever yeah. seen circumstances where the fractures have mended somehow, where shared interests, common bonds help bring people back together? Is, is that what you're asking? So in the current situation, with eating a slightly varied ideological movement internally and having that drive the differences between them when even some of the regional goals happen to be identical, are we seeing a development of a new, new common grounds ideology that could eventually become a unified movement that unites all of them, or at least a majority to come to a peaceful resolution? Gotcha. Maybe Kimberly, Kimberly, do you want to jump in? I, I, I'd love to tell you yes, but I think yeah. the answer is no. Uh, I think that uh, what you're asking is, is there a sort of pan-Arab nationalism uh, or other kind of sweeping movement uh, or sweeping set of ideas or even like the little granule of an idea that could be a sweeping idea uh, that gets, gets all of these groups together? And I have to say, I don't see it. Um, and uh, if, and therefore, uh, I think that we actually need to take each group on its own terms, uh, which makes the requirements for negotiating, for delivering aid, for supporting governance, uh, for uh, delivering humanitarian assistance, really, really, really tailored. Um, but you know what? We're the United States of America, and if we apply thought to how we need to tailor uh, our assistance to different groups, we can do that. I wonder maybe, but, if Nancy, if we, if we go back to some of what you said at the very beginning in terms of what causes states to become fragile, yep. that lack of inclusiveness where people fall apart. Yeah. This kind of seems to weave back into your original point where say a nation like the United States could be at 30,000 feet enough 
to either figure out a way to articulate that to everybody and make them go, oh, yeah, we're all kind of after the same thing, or deal with them individually and not force them to walk side by side, but still think, kind of play the chess game in a smarter way, understanding what the divisions are and not force them to come up with that themselves. Well, I think there's an interesting example next door to Syria in Iraq, which has just gone uh, through its third military campaign in the last 13, 14 years. And having, I was just there a few weeks ago, and in fact, what, what you find is that for the first time probably is Iraqis are feeling a sense that they, this time, were able to win the battle, that they, with Iraqi-led uh, fight, won over ISIS. And so there is, after a lot of fragmentation, and you've got you know, the Kurds, the Sunnis, the Shias, and a lot of different minority groups, there is a sense that they'll move forward within the state confines, and they're demanding a more accountable, more inclusive government. So that's a shared ideology. And in particular, it's true for those who are under the age of 35. And what you have in these conflict countries are disproportionately young populations. And what we're seeing is increasingly, it is the young members of these countries who are demanding less corruption, more accountability, more services, better governance. That, that if you want to call that an ideology, that's what I see emerging in Iraq, and I see that as a potential to emerge down the road in Syria. Let's see if we can squeeze in one more question. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Sean O'Reilly. I'm from George Mason University as a graduate student. So to take this from like a 30,000 feet level down to uh, where the rubber meets the road, what are some of the unique programs that USIP has been doing on the ground? And what are some ways, kind of tying it back into the last question, how can we incorporate more young people to make a positive contribution? Because as younger generations are going to be the inheritance of these problems that we're facing today. I wonder if by way of wrapping up, we could ask all three of you to answer that. First of all, Nancy, what is USIP doing? And then what do we see as ways to engage, any, any innovative programs you see, particularly ways to engage younger people who are going to inherit these problems from their parents to, to help them do so successfully. Nancy? Sure. Well, first of all, we have a program that engages youth leaders in conflict countries um, around the world called Generation Change, which is fundamentally equipping them with some of the key tools and skills and knowledge base that allows them to mediate and facilitate conflict in their own communities and states. Um, we very strongly here at USIP that peace uh, can be, how to, how to build peace can be learned and it is essentially very practical with skills that are often lost, especially in countries that are going through sometimes generations of conflict and you lose all the ways that basic disagreements can be managed before they erupt into violence. Kimberly? Um, I, ISW has a program of called the Hertog War Studies Program, whereby we train uh, young scholars here in Washington, D.C., so that they understand uh, what war is uh, and how the instrument works, uh, how it needs to be subordinated to a political objective, and how to ensure uh, that there is strong civilian control over the military. I know that's very small compared to what USIP does, but we're only 15 people, so we're pretty proud of it. <laughs> Thanks. It's doing pretty well for 15 people. Yeah. Elon. Sure, and um, I don't have any specific programs, although CNES, we also have a Next Generation Future Leaders Program, which tries to educate sort of policymakers on how to be more effective as they move forward um, and people who are going to assume those well. In fact, it's a central sort of part of what we do as an institution. We like to say we're mostly about futures, not formers. But I'll just finish by saying from, from a U.S. perspective, we've spent less time talking about this. I do think we also, it is a lot about the various tools that, that Nancy talked about and, and Kim talked about and we've all talked about and doing things on the ground. Um, but there also does have to be a long-term political willingness in this country to actually support dealing with these problems, and that includes military. And if there's one thing that we've learned, I think, from Iraq experience in particular, it's that 150,000 troops doesn't work because there's just not political support for something like that here, long-term, in my opinion. It's not worth the cost and the effort, um, and the American public isn't going to support it. But zero seems to also put us in some really bad places, as we saw with ISIS. And so maybe we need to be thinking about long-term 
you know, a few thousand troops in Syria, a few thousand troops in Iraq for the next 20 years to create, help create conditions that support all these other things is also a big part of the solution for this. You can't, it can't be just about the U.S. military, but we're not going to be able to do it without the U.S. military. I think we need to remember that, too. Elon Goldenberg, Senior Fellow from the Center for a New American Security, Kimberly Kagan, the Founder and President of the Institute for the Study of War, and Nancy Lindborg, the President of the United States Institute of Peace. Nancy, Elon, Kimberly, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Much Good appreciated. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joshua. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.